Hi, Damon. Welcome to Network Capital TV. We're really excited to host you on our uh, podcast. Uh, your book made a huge impact on uh, on me, the founder, as well as our entire team and community members. So could you get us started by telling us a bit about who you are and how did you get interested in networks, per se? Sure. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, my name is Damon Sintol, as you said. I'm a professor of sociology, engineering, and communication at the University of Pennsylvania. So I'm a sociologist, but I was also trained in physics. So my sort of approach to sociology is slightly different than what you may be familiar with. It's basically a kind of network science approach, which is I look at the sort of connectedness in populations and try to figure out how those patterns give rise to changes in behavior and the spread of new technologies, innovations, and also really social and cultural norms. Um, and so that's the sort of the, the beginning point and where this really gets exciting is Basically, the last 15 years have given birth to a brand new science of sociology for studying these kinds of social change. And it's really overturned everything we've thought for the last 100 years. And you talk about it extensively in your book. But before we start getting on to the concepts you tell there, what made you switch from physics to sociology? Because we're a community <laughs> largely of uh, millennials and Gen Z. And yeah. one question we're trying to figure out is what to do with our lives. And right. uh, the generalist versus specialist, should I study physics, should I study sociology, but you've, you know, been on both sides of the aisle. So tell us about that. Well, actually, the story is even more idiosyncratic. I came from philosophy. Um, and so what I was doing was studying uh, the evolution of cooperation and sort of fundamental problems in um, social norms from a philosophical perspective. And I started kind of playing around with computational models, really in my free time, just as something I did for fun, a kind of weird uh, sort of hobby. Um, and philosophy was like my main, my main job. I did this in undergrad and then into grad school. Um, and what I realized was that many of the main sort of deep problems of society and social order and social change that I was interested in philosophically um, fundamentally were questions of society and social dynamics. Um, and then I found a PhD program. This was at Cornell University where uh, they were studying complex systems and nonlinear dynamics um, and then allowed people to come in from different departments. So they were, you know, economists and chemists and biologists and physicists and applied mathematicians all kind of working together in the same PhD program. Um, and I had the idea to sort of do that program with sociology and they thought it was a good idea. And so that sort of gave birth to this sort of new way of doing science. And we're all beneficiaries of you switching or combining disciplines uh, in this unique way. So tell us about your new book, Damon. Uh, it's at the essence of how people think of networks. Uh, how do you get interested in that question? And what's the broad thesis of your book? And then we're going to dive deep into the seven points that you reflect on. Yeah. Well, the question of networks has been around for a long time. And this is actually kind of the issue with the book, which is that, you know, we've got actually long-standing intuition. Scientists have them, but also most of us in the, in the lay public have, you know, ideas about networks and how they function. And some of these ideas have been made popular. Um, the writer Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book about uh, two decades ago called Chain, uh, To the Tipping Point, rather. And in that book, he sort of outlined a lot of the sort of theories about networks um, in terms of this principle of the law of the few. There were like a few key people like connectors and mavens who were kind of the linchpins for social change and for um, social epidemics. 
And what he was doing was summarizing really the last like 60 years of social science. There'd been a lot of thinking about that since the 1940s. Um, and, uh, and what's happened really since then is that all of a sudden we have the capacity to study society experimentally. And that's a big change. It's actually a qualitative change in the science because historically what we've had to do is to just kind of look at a process of social change and then try to kind of decipher what it was about the people or about the networks um, that allowed a change process to succeed. One big problem with that strategy is that you never get to see the failures, right? You're only looking at successes because there's no data on failures because they never happened. Um, and so ultimately the same factors can be there when things fail, you just don't know it. So it's very hard to discern what's actually making uh, change processes or innovation succeed um, unless you can compare failures and successes side by side. And the only way to do that really is experimentally. And it's kind of a, a thought experiment. You have to imagine building a society, having lots of people in that society working together, and then having some new idea or innovation pop up or emerge, and then be able to study how it spreads and then how the social networks among people control that spreading. And the idea since really 1940, uh, 44, um, developed by Paul Lazarsfeld and Elihu Katz, this idea of the, the, uh, the opinion leader, was that uh, when media sends signals out to people about you know, who to vote for, what products to buy, um, those signals don't really directly hit consumers. What they typically do is they land on a few key people, which were called opinion leaders, and then those people kind of disseminated the media messages to everyone else. And so the lesson was, um, if you find those key people, you can then change, you know, change the world, change everyone's opinion, get people to sort of adopt electric cars, or get people to you know, adopt your new product, or get people to sort of you know, vote for your candidate. And so that was kind of the status of thinking, and that's kind of the law of the few. There are special people, and that's what Gladwell was talking about. And that's what the modern notion of the influencer is built on, is that there are some people who are so massively socially connected that if you can just get to them, then everything else will change. Um, and that idea turns out uh, to be really effective for things like um, you know, gossip about celebrities, um, products like teeth whitening creams or you know new brands of coconut water for these kinds of contagions, um, they do spread from influencers to everyone else. But it turns out to fail entirely when we're talking about um, social change, thinking here of like disruptive new products or um, you know bold new political initiatives or movements for sustainability or for race and gender equality. And when it comes to that kind of social change, actually, all the data show over and over again that influencers are among the last people to adopt, that that kind of social change actually gets hold in like the edges, what I refer to as the periphery of the social network, and then spreads through to the middle and takes over the rest of society. That's a spreading process that's pretty much the exact opposite of what our traditional theory tells us. And the real reason here, the sort of the big insight of the book and what I spend a lot of time developing is that we've used diseases as our sort of core metaphor for how change happens. And we've all seen with COVID-19 how a single person getting infected can infect a lot of other people. In fact, in your social network, it doesn't matter how many healthy people you know. It only matters if one person you know is infected and you have close contact with them, that's sufficient for transmission. And that model of exposure equals transmission is the sort of the key for viral epidemics. Um, and again, that can be effective for certain kinds of information, certain, you know, gossip about celebrities or, or coconut water. But when it comes to a social change that's difficult or unfamiliar, a little bit costly, 
um, anything that requires sort of challenging ourselves or changing what we're normally doing, what we look at isn't just the people we're exposed to who have adopted it. We also look at all the non-adopters, all the people who aren't adopting it, and they act as sort of countervailing influences, kind of pressuring us to maintain the status quo. And this is one reason why people in the periphery who are less connected, they have fewer contacts kind of pressuring them, are easier to sort of get going, to sort of initiate a change process. And that's where it really takes hold and spreads. Um, and almost, like I said, all the data from the last 60 years or actually the last 75 years say the same thing, but now we can show it experimentally. We can create these networks and seed them with innovations and show demonstrably that, that the sort of change process takes hold in exactly this way and spreads around the edges before taking over the center. And that's such a revelatory insight because you're uh, talking about influencers essentially being a myth, right? And uh, it's uh, not going to make some people happy, but uh, could you tell us if influencers matter at all? You've alluded to it, but explain it in the current sense. Yeah, and so the important thing to do is to basically break up the world into like social contagions of type one and type two. And the first type of social contagion is a simple contagion. Um, and this is these are basically viruses. They're things that spread virally. So you know, actual viruses like COVID-19 is a simple contagion and sort of contact equals transmission. Um, all you need to do is to come into rare contact with someone who has it. And again, gossip works the same way. And, you know, a simple product like coconut water works the same way too. Um, but a complex contagion is different. And that's sort of the other side of the coin. And when we look at the world of social spreading, we realize that almost everything can be divided into either a simple contagion or a complex contagion. And that tells us uh, um, really you know, volumes about the spreading process. And the most important thing is we can now make predictions and people don't usually think of sociology as like a predictive science, but we can now make predictions about um, how something will spread and the locations in the social network, the sort of the sort of key spots for initiating change, they're going to be most effective for spreading change. And for some cases, we've always we pretty much always assume the influencers are the go-to people for initiating change. And again, for simple contagions, that's true. For COVID, if a highly connected person with lots of contacts reaching out to the periphery gets infected, that person's going to infect a lot of people. And equivalently, if that person learns a new piece of gossip, they can spread that piece of gossip to a lot of people. But if that person tries to initiate a social change that's unpopular, that no one likes, very quickly that person will no longer be an influencer because they're surrounded by people who are following different social norms who don't like that idea. And really what you find is that the people who are at the center of the network, the influencers, tend to articulate ideas that reinforce our existing beliefs. These are simple contagions. They tell us what we already know. They tell us what's familiar and easy. And those sorts of things, those ideas, do spread very easily from influencers. But an idea that challenges our biases, that sort of forces us to think differently or to sort of um, take a new approach to a problem, maybe change our diet or exercise routines, those kinds of ideas and behaviors are complex contagions. They almost never take hold from the influencers. And for those kinds of things, the question is, well, then where, you know, <laughs> what do we do? Uh, how do we target the network? And the exciting thing about this book is I've been able to locate the specific sort of parts of the social network where innovations like this, complex contagions that require change, they're a little difficult, a little bit unfamiliar, they do take hold and they spread really effectively. And we've got lots of case studies from you know the last century of social science, but also lots of new experiments de demonstrating that we can sort of demonstrate or demonstrating that we can sort of causally control the spreading process of an innovation. 
could you connect the dots between uh, Ebola, Twitter, and COVID-19? Yeah, so Ebola is an interesting case because it was um, a situation where obviously it's highly contagious, simple contagion, but at the same time, there were really strong cultural norms um, in West Africa that uh, prevented some of the public health interventions from being effective. One was that people were, um, uh, I guess, culturally familiar with this idea of like standing next to the ill, which is that you would be physically close to ill people as a way of sort of um, providing them with spiritual strength, which makes sense. But of course, because Ebola was so contagious, that was also a, a sort of transmission vehicle. And so public health experts were telling uh, family members to stay up like physically distant from their sick relatives. And this was taken as a cultural offense, a sort of profanity. Um, and so there was very strong cultural reaction. In fact, to the extent that I think there were some accusations that Ebola itself was a disease that had been caused by some of the white physicians who were there trying to address and prevent the disease. Um, and so this enormous cultural backlash is a good example of how the social norms in a culture wind up being the dominant feature determining whether or not people adopt a behavior, like a behavior related to public health. We also saw this in the US, right? The COVID-19 spread like a simple contagion. It spread, you know, through families, it spread through offices, it spread it, you know, at funerals and at choirs, um, but it also spread across party lines without any problem. Face masks, however, was a different situation that, you know, the adoption of face masks was highly dependent upon, you know, partisan commitments and beliefs and the community that you're in. And so the behavior change uh, spreading process was really different from the diffusion of the virus. And this is again, because the virus is a simple contagion and the behavior change was a complex contagion. And really this sort of brings up the core issue of norms because norms are the key to understanding when a behavior is gonna be easy to spread or hard to spread. And then the core challenge is, okay, if the norms, you know, like we've seen with face masks and as we saw with uh, Ebola prevention, if the norms uh, cause people to resist, you know, desirable public health behaviors, what do we do, right? And we've seen this with HIV for, HIV prevention in southern in southern sub-Saharan Africa as well, where people um, were given free medication that was, you know, almost 100% effective in preventing the spread of HIV, um, but they just refused to take it because of the social stigma of taking HIV-related medications. And so the challenge there wasn't providing people with a solution or even the technology, it was just getting people to use it. Um, and we've seen this time and time again, that, that you know, getting people to adopt is actually the bottleneck when it comes to um, the successful sort of um, innovation in public health and also in sustainability science and so forth. Um, so one of the solutions then is to think about how is it that we change the social norms? How do we get into the network in the right way? Um, and the key concept there is tipping points, is that even when a vast majority of the population is resisting a social norm, if we can target a community in the right way, we can grow a critical mass and it only needs to reach about 25% of the population to then cascade across the network and take over the center and take over everywhere else. And that's a small number because we've typically thought that you need like 50% to you know, trigger a, a change in the population as a whole. Um, but all the social movement data, all the public health data and all the environmental change data um, give us this sort of hope that once a movement sort of reaches this critical mass point, you get this sort of really abrupt change in people's receptiveness to a new idea and their willingness to adopt it. Um, and the key point here is that what a norm really is, is people coordinating with each other. 
is people looking to others to sort of feel comfortable and knowing that others are looking to them to sort of get social confirmation and, and approval. And we are all doing a sort of set, sort of set of behaviors that let us feel comfortable and normative. Um, but then when the world starts to change, as it did with COVID, all of a sudden, <laughs> their ground shifts beneath our feet and we don't know what behaviors are going to be acceptable. We don't know what people expect of us. We're not really sure what we expect of other people. And this was evident just, you know, last spring when people were trying to walk down the sidewalk. It was like, how do you how do you pass by someone? Because the normal social expectations of how close you should be, um, whether you're wearing a mask or not, what the whether you greet them or not, whether you stop and talk or not, all those things uh, changed. And they changed in ways that different people understood. So it was very difficult for people to coordinate and everyone felt just uncomfortable. Um, and so we've kind of tried, as, as societies around the world have tried to sort of coordinate on new social norms, allow everyone to kind of get along. And the question is, well, at what point can we change social norms for other things too? Can we change social norms for like gender roles in the workplace or sex discrimination or um, racism and policing? And this is exactly the kind of thing that, you know, that the book explores and demonstrates sort of certain tactics and strategies for initiating these kinds of change processes. What I loved about the book is that there are examples from Rosa Parks to Twitter to opera and, uh, you know, Germany. So first question, is there a way to change norms? And second, is that where in the network should we start? Should we start by founding, finding a whole bunch of uh, really popular influencers or should we start somewhere else? Well, the, I mean, sort of already covered the influencers point. I think that that's, again, it's, if it's a complex contagion, if it's a change in social norms, then, you know, obviously that's not going to work very, very well. Um, the best example of that is something like Google Glass, right? What they tried to do was to initiate a, a massive social change, create this new product that everyone was supposed to want. Um, Glass, if you don't recall, was this sort of cyborg technology that Google created where you could have this sort of digital interaction with your environment where you could record it and, and sort of look at videos and have content sort of streaming into your eye while you were sort of interacting with people. Um, and there was this enormous social backlash against it. People felt like it was invasive to have video technology in their sort of face-to-face -face encounters, but also they felt like it was inappropriate um, socially to have that kind of content um, intervening in face-to-face -face communications. Um, and as a result, uh, people not only sort of rebelled against the technology so badly that Google had to shelve it, um, but actually it hurt the reputation of the organization because it went from, you know, the sort of idea of Google as this kind of cool tech company building websites uh, for search engines um, to, um, to Google really being a, a company that sold surveillance technology to the rich. Um, but their idea was, you know, give the technology to high profile people who would, you know, show off um, and, and be able to sort of make everyone else want it. So there's supposed to be a sort of aspirational notion. This is kind of what the influencer model relies on is that influencers are somehow seen as high status and therefore people want to emulate them and that's where the influence comes from but if they're different from everyone else which the techies in the bay area were sort of noticeably different than the vast majority of the population um, and they're adopting behavior that's sort of conspicuously different then that difference doesn't generate em emulation it generates kind of resentment which is what happened in, in you know with google glass is that they're actually kind of created or at least manifested a culture war um, and so that's the kind of thing that you have to be careful about when you use the influencer strategy because Social norms in that case are this enormous obstacle that winds up, you know, creating not just resistance but backlash. 
Um, so when it comes to so yeah, a quick so me, one, on, yeah. a quick one on the follow-up, if you're if you're okay with that. Sure. Um, so in in the book, you really explain solidly why you know uh, Google Glass didn't work and what were the repercussions. Have you heard of, of this app called Clubhouse? Yeah. Would you care to explain how is it different from Google Glass and what's your thesis on that and what can network science tell us about it? Well, Clubhouse is one where you have to invite people and they have to invite people and they have to invite people, right? Um, and there were there are some that are getting started like that. And I think they're trying to get high profile people like Elon Musk to join, right? That was like one of the initial sort of uh, trends. Um, but people also have to invite people they know. So there's this kind of like peer network phenomenon going on. Um, there was another one that tried to get going just before this one uh, where it was built almost entirely on trying to get... Um, uh, celebrities and stars uh, on board, uh, and that one uh, now the name I'm failing on, but that Maybe one actually came cameo. Uh, cameo. Um, it was cameo. Uh, it was was it Quibi? Was that the name? There was one like this that started. Yeah, just yeah, like, yeah. The yeah. media company, right? Got yeah, it. and it yeah. was just like you know high profile people, and it failed so badly that they actually sent out a, an apology letter to investors because it was it was a total f flop, and it was exactly the same dynamics as Google Glass, where it was like they just pushed high profile people, and the vast majority of the population just felt like instead of feeling again emulation, they just felt alienation, like you know, the, whatever this thing is, is not for me. And this is one of the things that we notice when it comes to, um, again, remember we're thinking about like, if you really wanted to change social norms, like what people, you know, do and feel acceptable, uh, feel, believe is acceptable, what they're comfortable doing. Um, it's really a matter of friendship networks. So if you're looking at like success stories for social media, the best cases are things like Twitter, where Twitter grew locally, it grew through like neighborhood networks. It literally spread from like block to block in San Francisco um, and then spread through these sort of overlapping friendship ties from people who went to college together in the Bay Area and, and, and in you know, Cambridge, Massachusetts. And then it kind of caught on and spread through Cambridge and then through Massachusetts and then spread through, um, again, through so, like strong ties, social networks, close friends and overlapping ties over to Seattle. Um, and so it wasn't like this random viral spreading process. It was like this really clear kind of neighborhood growth through these reinforcing social ties that grew this sort of strong kind of support network for Twitter. And then it sort of reached critical mass ultimately and then took off. And what's so interesting about something like Twitter is that part of the story is that as Twitter grew and grew and grew, at some point, Oprah kind of famously adopted her television show. And then after Oprah adopted, you saw that Twitter had lots of users. Um, and a lot of people attributed Twitter's late success to Oprah's adoption on her television show. And again, that is the classic influencer story. Um, but what's interesting is that, and this is where the science comes in, is that when you look at the data of Twitter's growth, what you see is that Oprah adopted in April on her television show. And basically starting in late January, Twitter hit like hit its critical mass and just started like hyper exponential growth month after month after month and quickly went from 8 million users to 20 million users. And then it was like towards the end of that growth curve that Oprah adopted. And then Twitter kept growing, but actually it slowed down its rate of growth. Um, and so Oprah adopted like at the peak of Twitter's like explosiveness. Um, and so what we see, if we look back at just the data from some sort of observation, we see, oh, Twitter was small, then Oprah adopted, then Twitter was big. But the actual story is that Twitter was kind of growing through the network periphery, through these sort of overlapping network ties, gaining steam until it became so big that even someone like Oprah couldn't ignore it. 
And so when we think about these sort of changes in social norms or the acceptance of innovation, innovative technologies, the real thing to think about is how do these sorts of networks work to gr grow so much social support that even like the big star influencers can't ignore, right? How does that process happen? Because once those people are adopting, the thing has already succeeded. The sort of the important stuff has already happened. It's already kind of reached the tipping point and it's just growing across society at that point. And so that's kind of where, that's sort of the story that the book tells is trying to explain that. And to answer your question, where are those places? The key concept here is what are the links across different communities? So in the example of Twitter, what are the connections between the San Francisco Bay Area and Cambridge, Massachusetts? And we've almost always thought of like um, ties, network connections, social relationships in terms of these sort of links. And we say, well, if there's one link between an area, there's a bridge between them. Um, and so this is how we think of viral spreading. If someone gets on a plane in Wuhan, China, and then flies to New York City and gets off the plane in New York, if that person's infected with the novel coronavirus, then they, they have carried the coronavirus from Wuhan, China to New York City. And as soon as they get off the plane, they can infect a lot of people. Right. And that idea of that single person being like the key link that kind of carries a contagion across the world. Again, that works for simple contagions. But when it comes to spreading a new technology, one person who has, you know, using this technology among their friends and then, you know, traveling to a, another place isn't going to convince a lot of people to start using it, largely because it's a social technology. And the people who are going to adopt are relying on knowing other people who are already adopting. And so the key for the spread of a technology like Twitter or any kind of innovation that requires sort of coordination with other people that you know is that there's sort of reinforcing social bridges, what I call a wide social bridge between communities. Um, and that was like the essence of the connection between the San Francisco Bay Area and Cambridge, Massachusetts, where a lot of people had gone to school together. So lots of sort of friends of friends of friends of friends across this large geographic space, but it was actually kind of a tightly knit social space. And that's what allowed Twitter to spread across these sort of two communities and ultimately to more communities and to keep growing. Um, and we see this story again and again. It's the true for Facebook. It's true for Skype. You know, every sort of data set that we're able to get a hold of has these same dynamics. Interestingly, it's also true for Black Lives Matter. It also spread that same way. If you think about the sort of vastly different communities that ultimately got involved in, in Black Lives Matter from Ferguson, Missouri to New York City, which are two communities that have very little in common otherwise, but they were sort of key mobilization points that sort of got heavily involved with each other during the mobilization of Black Lives Matter and then, you know, grew into sort of this massive worldwide movement. And underneath the growth of Black Lives Matter, you see this sort of network of wide bridges between diverse communities forming years before the 2020 protests exploded around the world. And so this network story and those sort of particular locations in these networks with these sort of wide bridges between them really helped to explain when and where social change and changes in social norms will really take hold and take off. That is such an illuminating point. You know, we, none of us think of uh, networks in this systematic way. And, you know, through your book, you've managed to dispel so many myths and given us so many mental models for, uh, for us to think about. But Damon, I would love for you to explain a little bit about uh, network redundancy, uh, which you alluded to in your answer. But how might, say, young people thinking of forging networks, what should they do? Should they optimize for efficiency or is there more to the uh, mix? Yeah, it's a good question and also uh, very relevant to the sort of theme of network capital, right? Because 
um, one of the classic lessons in business. And before I'm at the University of Pennsylvania now, but before then I was at the Sloan School at MIT. And so we taught MBA courses on, you know, networking and how to use your networks for effective, um, you know, success in business, but also uh, marketing and promotion. And one of the core lessons that we tell people is um, create this sort of expansive network of what are referred to as weak ties or, or narrow bridges. Um, and it's a kind of business networking 101 type lesson, which is if you can find the groups that no one is connected to, and then you can make the connection to them, you know, be this person, like the person who gets on the plane in Wuhan, China and flies to New York. Like you're this, you're this connection to this group of people that's total strangers. So you work in the engineering department and no one in engineering talks to sales. Um, but if you, you know, go out on a limb and forge a contact with someone in sales, then you can kind of learn about what's going on in sales and then report back to engineering. And now you become kind of a broker for this information. And then um, you can also do the same thing, you know, find a tie to manufacturing and then meet someone who works in the design department. Um, and you can do this, creating these sort of, you know, network ties that kind of leap across the organization or even across multiple organizations. And then you become kind of the center of like a fireworks explosion of these sort of like, you know, narrow bridges all across, you know, the organization or even across your industry. And this is a great way to develop, in, a, in some sense, network capital. You become the sort of center of the hub for this kind of information spreading network. Um, and that can be very effective and it's a great way to gain kind of power in the organization because then if anyone wants to find out about what's going on in these places, they kind of come to you, right? And there's, you know, since the early nineties, there's just a ton of literature on this idea of becoming kind of an information broker in this way. Um, and all of that is true again, but information is a simple contagion. So it's just about sort of finding out facts. But if you wanna convince people in your organization to adopt a new innovation that requires them to change their work routines or adopt their schedule or coordinate with other people, then you're gonna find that just being an information broker isn't very effective. The kinds of bridges in an organization that are effective for getting different groups like engineering and sales to coordinate on using the same technology or to meeting together and working on projects together aren't narrow bridges by information brokers. They're sort of wide bridges where there's multiple ties between the groups where people can coordinate with each other, where people can talk within the group about what's going on in the other group. And they can sort of learn how other people think and in that way, develop kind of productive ways of, of talking to each other that sort of establish a common language. Um, and what this does, unfortunately, is it undercuts the power of the individual broker, which is to say, the person who's doing this sort of networking at that point has less individual power because they don't control all the network ties. But the organization as a whole is better off because that infrastructure that holds the organization together is now constructed of wide bridges as opposed to narrow bridges. So if one person leaves, the bridge network doesn't fall apart. It's still there. It's reinforced by multiple people. And so the kind of the important thing to, to think about here is really what this new science does is tell us that our previous science had identified a couple of key lessons but those lessons were a little short-sighted. They gave us one sort of point of view, which is the value of information or the dynamics of disease and said, okay, well, that's how simple contagions work. But they didn't tell us anything about complex contagions, which when we think about organizational change, about adaptive organizations, about innovation organizations, about cultural change, like um, changing you know, the norms of sexual harassment uh, within organizations, all of those things are complex contagions and they require a sort of wide bridge infrastructure to initiate change. And so when you're talking about um, 
how to sort of make the best use of your networks in an organizational or a business context, it really matters to think about what kinds of goals you have. There's no sort of one size fits all solution. There's different strategies. Um, and part of what I'm doing is bringing to light the value of this new strategy of this alternative strategy for creating change. And that's sort of the, the sort of emphasis, which a lot of people in organizations care about. They care about sort of improving the adaptiveness of their organization or changing the norms in their organization. And it's also true, by the way, for industries as a whole, because when we look at the industries that have been most successful, like Silicon Valley and just the horse, the, the basically the whole culture of open innovation, we find is that the classic old school model, you know, from the 1950s was 60s, was that you'd have an organization with high walls around it, and um, you know maybe some some narrow bridges to other organizations for you know some sort of exchange relationship, but basically all the decisions were made internally. And what Silicon Valley did that was so sort of breathtaking and different, emulating in many ways Japan, who had sort of initiated this with the high tech industry was they started sort of forming these partnerships where there were like like lower boundaries between the organizations and they could share information back and forth, they even strategic information and coordinate and, and, and cooperate on joint ventures across organizational boundaries and create wide bridges between multiple organizations. And so Silicon Valley kind of invented this sort of network of wide bridges that created this really robust infrastructure for productivity and innovation as we've seen. That's fascinating. Uh, just a couple of more questions before we let you go. Uh, if you're in a position where you're gaining a lot of power, you're the information broker, you're bringing lots of people together, how do you think of politics? Uh, do people hate you more than they love you? Or what are some strategies to mitigate politics from derailing you from your goal? Yeah, well, so information brokers are in a funny position. I mean, you don't become a highly connected person by ignoring your social contacts, right? You become highly connected by paying attention to the people you're connected to and being aware of what their expectations are. Um, and this is why one of the reasons we think of information brokers as like they have lots of connections. And so that in some ways puts them at the center of the social network. And so we tend to imagine those are all kind of outgoing connections, which is to say they just influence a lot of people. But of course, those are also incoming connections in the sense they have a lot of people watching them. Um, and those are influences I refer to as countervailing influences. Um, and so some of the examples I gave earlier where, you know, if, if you're talking about the spread of a disease, it's only just the one person you know who's infected. So then one person can infect a lot of people. It doesn't matter, you know, who's healthy and who's not. Um, but if you're looking at a change that's unpopular, then the influencer is just overwhelmed by these countervailing influences. And so this makes the influencer often circumspect when it comes to evaluating sort of a new change initiative. So in terms of maintaining kind of the, the political capital that influencer has, it means that they're kind of socially constrained. And this is something that I think everyone who's highly connected is aware of. I mean, to some extent, we're all socially constrained. We're aware of how the people around us see us. And this is the sort of the key to social norms is that we're kind of paying attention to our, you know, the expectations people have of us and, and that we have of them. Um, Influencers, you know, highly connected network brokers just have a lot more people watching them and forcing them to sort of conform to different expectations. Um, and so the power of, an, of a sort of an information broker has often just come from their, their, the fact that they're kind of needed, which is to say if they leave the organization, they, they sort of carry a huge amount of weight because all those social ties and all that sort of information flow goes with them and groups that were connected through them now become siloed again. 
Um, and so that kind of power creates uh, a certain amount of bargaining uh, capacity. Um, and I wouldn't say it creates um, any kind of negative politics as much as it creates a kind of you know, the good old fashioned politics of power through exclusiveness, which is to say nobody else can do it. So this person has a certain amount of sway. Um, so I wouldn't worry about, you know, the question of, you know, resentment or, you know, political challenge, but I would ask the person who's sort of playing the role of the broker, how much capacity they feel like they have to, to initiate a change that's not popular. Um, and that's where, that's where sort of the roadblock comes for through the highly connected, you know, broker within an organizational network. And at that point, that's where, and this is something I describe kind of in detail in the book, I sort of say, look, if you were to describe the kind of classic networking 101, how to use your social networks to get ahead, it would tell you to become an information broker. Um, but that's not gonna tell you how to initiate change in your organization. So you really have to think carefully about what your strategies are. Because if your goal is to initiate change in your organization, you're gonna have to think about how to create wider bridges across some of the groups that you're connected to. So even as you're you know, interested in helping to promote information flow, if you really wanna promote innovation or you really wanna motivate some kind of change in the culture of your organization, you're gonna to have to adopt slightly different networking strategies. And I lay out you know, how to sort of go about doing that, how to sort of construct meetings and how to kind of think about your networking tactics in a way that can help create those networks. Um, I don't think that creates uh, negative capital so much as what it does is it creates a kind of um, a more welcoming structure and allows you, the, you know, the information broker or at this point, the sort of knowledge broker um, to be much more engaged in sort of relationship building among other people, as opposed to just relationship building for yourself. That's phenomenal, Damon. Thank you so much for laying it out so clearly for all of us. I mean, we're all uh, young people around the world trying to figure out, make sense of our lives. And these mental models are precious. Uh, just last question before you go. Um, tell us about... Uh, inclusion bias and in networks you in the book i let the readers read it and figure it out from themselves there are many examples that are presented but uh, how might we make networks slightly more inclusive uh, slightly more embracing of change are there some strategies um, where does it all begin yeah in many ways this winds up being like the punchline of the book is that once you once you sort of um, have understood the dynamics of social spreading and how can you know simple and complex contagions work and how tipping points work then the book kind of ends with this description of well what is bias how does bias prevent us you know from making good decisions and how can we overcome it because um, bias is a problem really in any situation it affects like politics it certainly affects you know, um, echo chambers and, and, and partisan um, conflict, but it also affects like physicians trying to make good decisions for different patients. We see like huge um, implicit bias among physicians with, you know, black patients and female patients as opposed to white patients and male patients in the US. It also affects business leaders. And it, even one, one sort of discussion I have in the book is about you know, the scouting in, in professional sports and how there's enormous biases there too that prevent people from making good decisions. Um, and then the crucial question is, okay, well, so now that we know <laughs> there's this problem, what can we do about it? Um, and this is really where my book sort of pulls apart from uh, something like the book Nudge, because Nudge talks about our cognitive biases and says, well, this is how we can use our cognitive biases to kind of trick people into making better decisions. Um, but my strategy is really to say, well, how can the networks around us actually help us to overcome our biases and make different decisions? Um, and 
one way to think about this kind of comes back to the central point about influencers, which is that biased opinions are simple contagions within the community that already believes those biases. So if we're talking to a bunch of um, you know, politically committed people of one, uh, of one party, right, Republicans or Democrats, and we have a view that's kind of an extremist view within our party lines, that if the network is highly centralized, that simple contagion kind of feeds on itself and makes the group increasingly biased and increasingly extreme in its viewpoint. And we saw this kind of dynamics with the attacks on the, the US Capitol just a few weeks ago. Um, and then one of the questions is, well, what can we do to sort of ameliorate this process? And so some of the work that I've been doing is to try to show that if we change the structure, if we allow people to interact in a more egalitarian fashion, which means that everyone has more of an equal voice in the network, it completely changes the dynamics of how people reason and how they learn from each other. And so one of the most striking studies, we, we actually studied echo chambers with you know, thousands of Democrats and Republicans. Um, and in some studies, we have them talk to each other. But in this study, what was interesting is we had just the Democrats talking to Democrats, Republicans talking to Republicans about contentious topics like immigration and um, gun control. And those are situations in which if you have people talking echo chambers, you'd expect the echo chambers to become increasingly polarized and people to have you know, less and less accurate opinions about these important policy topics. What we found is if we took those networks and made them less centralized and had just people talk to just a few neighbors and instead of a fireworks explosion, it was more of a fishing net so that people had a couple of contacts and their contacts had contacts and so on and so forth. So there's no real center of the network. And as people talk to their neighbors, ideas that were a little bit different from the sort of mainstream bias of their of their community could gain traction and ideas that were sort of better representative of the truth, a little bit more accurate, a little bit more intelligent, wound up sort of taking hold and being more influential. And as a result of this process, interestingly, the independent uh, echo chambers, the Democrat and Republican echo chambers actually wound up uh, moving toward each other and becoming more similar. So by the end of the study, the Democrats and Republicans had almost the same beliefs, even though they were interacting in echo chambers, because the echo chambers were structured in this egalitarian fashion. Um, and we've also applied this uh, to looking at physicians making decisions about patients and strikingly found that, you know, initially, if you ask physicians to evaluate patients, black women are significantly less likely to be admitted to the hospital than white men for the same exact cardiac condition. It's a striking and very dangerous and very scary finding. Um, but what we also found is that if we put those physicians into egalitarian networks where they could share information and all of a sudden, you know, status disappears, um, rank and hierarchy disappears, the kind of biases that may exist within the physician, the physician community that are amplified by someone who's like a chief surgeon or a leader in the community um, is eliminated. And all of a sudden, just different points of view wind up sort of allow, you know, influencing each other, creating kind of a wisdom of the crowd. And all the physicians, these are expert trained people, all make better decisions just by virtue of kind of conferring with colleagues in an egalitarian network versus a centralized network. And what we're able to show is that we increased diagnostic accuracy, but more importantly, eliminated bias in the rate at which white men and black women were admitted to the hospital. Um, and again, I use the strategy even with scouts uh, for the Philadelphia 76ers making decisions about uh, prospective uh, recruits for the team um, and showed by putting scouts you know, together in these, or the coaches rather, together in these networks, we could actually significantly improve their ability to predict player performance um, just by virtue of having them talk in egalitarian networks. And so the power of changing the network structure um, is that it can systematically 
alter people's ability to sort of understand the facts and to make good decisions. Um, and that's a huge, that's huge. Uh, and it sort of, it sort of opens up a new possibility for thinking about how to run an organization, how to sort of be a good leader. Because what leaders can do is they can make networks more egalitarian. They can invite more people into the conversation. And I talk uh, in the book about this story where you know, um, President Obama came to MIT in, in 2018 and gave a talk about sports analytics, but also about leadership, um, and gave a specific anecdote where he talked about you know sitting around a you know when a cabinet meeting with you know with his advisors, um, and he was very kind of tongue in cheek about it. He said, you know, look that uh, we at this big oak table and you know high leather back chairs and it all felt very presidential um and then the room you know in the in the shadows around the edges was just lined with these staffers who were standing uh quietly while you know the important people talked about you know the policy briefings and what he pointed out was that everyone at the table making the decisions hadn't actually seen the data what they had got was these sort of high level briefings from the people around the edges who were you know waiting in the shadows um, and those were the people who actually looked at the data, the sort of, you know, staffers and policy grunts. Um, and so what he would do as the leader is call on those people and bring them into the conversation, which is really unusual for president. Um, but this was, you know, basically he was adopting this networking strategy of making this sort of conversational network and the information in the network more egalitarian and less centralized. Um, and he would use this as a core sort of principle in his decision making. Um, and it's it's sort of a it's sort of a nice insight into how you know leadership can allow us to sort of alter the structure of the networks in our organizations in a way that's really productive, um, not just for allowing new ideas to take hold and to reduce biases, but really to allow us to make better decisions. Damon, that's such a fascinating note to end on. Um, your book uh, has really been transformational for our company and our community, hundred thousand young people around the world. So I encourage everyone to check out Change, How to Make Big Things Happen by Damon Santola. We look forward to being in touch, Damon. Thank you so much for your time, for your insights, and for the book. Thank you for having me.